0: All right. Good morning. My name is Brian, and uh, if you were here earlier, my uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, Jim is on vacation this week. Um, down at the beach. It's kind of a running joke, but he really is at the beach this week. Um, This is his kind of like family vacation every year. He's got like, I don't know, 12 brothers and 18 sisters or something. Um, But he's got this huge family and they go down to Virginia Beach somewhere and they rent a big house and just have a good time. So we are uh, covering for him this week and hope he's having a relaxing time down there. But we are going to kind of close up. We're wrapping up this series on the life of this man here, David. And uh, it's just been a really powerful um, kind of series. We've had the chance to hear about all David's ups and downs. Uh, we heard Paul speak a couple weeks ago, which was awesome. And Jim's been bringing us along. And so today I'm going to kind of land this ship. At least that's what I'm hoping to do. And, and, uh, but today's kind of story is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be reminded of something that probably most of us don't need to be reminded of. Um, something that we're kinda, you're going to hear it and you're going to be like, yeah, that, Brian, that kind of makes sense. You dragged us all here for that. But I did. So today we're going to look at, you know, be reminded that life rarely kind of goes as planned. Life kind of rarely goes as we anticipate. And a good example of that is I went to my son's football game yesterday and I went anticipating to have a good time. And I left with this awesome sunburn on the back of my head. So when you get a nice short haircut, don't go sit in the sun for four hours because they don't go well together. I didn't plan for that, but it happened. And the truth is, is that plans are great, aren't they? Like plans are great, but the truth is, is that reality is greater. Reality is greater then our plans, we can come up with all the greatest, there it is, all the greatest plans in the world, but reality hits and sometimes those plans just go right out the window. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, when um, you're expecting your first child, many um, couples will come together and they'll have like, the birth plan, right? And it's going to be awesome. You're going to have some folk music plan, the candles all lit in the room and you're going drug free. It's just going to be awesome. And then the baby comes. And the whole world just flips upside down and your plan just goes right out the window. And so plans are great at the moment, but sometimes they don't go exactly how we expect them to go. Reality wins. But the same thing can be said of our dreams, right? Like we'll all have hopes and dreams and I hope you do and have big dreams. But the truth is sometimes our dreams just aren't going to come true. Sometimes dreams don't come true. We don't live in Disney World, right, where everything's a happy ending sometimes. But dreams do come true from time to time, and that's awesome. But sometimes dreams don't. and Sometimes dreams just can't come true. Sometimes they can't, whether it's because of some mistakes that you've made or the mistakes that others make. But sometimes dreams just can't come true. It might look like this. Maybe the two of you aren't going to live happily ever after. Maybe your second marriage is kind of starting to feel a little bit like your first. Maybe it wasn't the dream job you thought it was going to be. It was built up and you got there and it just just wasn't what all the hype was about. Maybe your family is just not going to get together and have a good time during the holidays. Maybe that's just not going to work out for you. Maybe you're not going to have children. Maybe your new business isn't going to make it. You know, maybe life's going to happen. Maybe your parents aren't going to get back together. Maybe you will never get married. Maybe your child's not going to come home. Maybe your son is going to marry her anyways. Even though you've kind of warned him and you're hoping and praying that it won't happen that way. But maybe it is. Or maybe you were kind of under the impression that, that God promised you something. Maybe you're holding on to, you know, God promised you this, so it's, it's got to happen. No matter what I go through, it's going to happen. Or maybe God owed you. Maybe it's that God owes me this. I've put my dues in. I've played by the rules. I've read all the right books, right? I've done everything. And, and it just looks like my dreams aren't coming true, but everyone else's are. Or maybe it looks like God granted them your wish. The thing you hoped for and you planned for that God, you know, granted them your wish. He gave it to somebody else. And you plan for this, but God chose them and not you. And where does that leave us? I'm not discouraging having plans. My wife's a planner. We've got this giant calendar on the side of our fridge. I know what I'm doing for the next month and a half. It's all right there. It's got all the Celtics games for the 2018, 2019 season all written out. We know what we're doing. We've got a plan. And those are great. Plan that family vacation. You need to do that. Plans are great. Dreams are awesome. They're big. Have big dreams. But today, as we wrap up the series in the life of David, we're going to be reminded about something. We're going to find some answers to this question. What do we do when our dreams can't come true? What do we do when we're faced with our dreams just can't come true? They're not going to be true. They're not going to come true. No matter what we do, they just aren't going to get there. And so we left off last week and King David, he's finally King David, he's in his 20s about this time and uh, his dreams and his hopes start to be undermined by crazy King Saul. He's out to get David and so David flees, he's a fugitive, right? He's out, he's running for his life, he's scared and he ends up kind of being chased out of that city and David does what many of us do, he kind of panics, right? Right? He panics, he says, he says, I gotta gotta figure this out. He takes things into his own hands and he makes mistake after mistake after mistake, and people die along the way. But as we learned an important lesson, and David, we I believe learned an important lesson through that, and we're gonna kind of see how that plays out in his life today. But as king, he would begin to undermine his own dreams. And it will leave us with an important lesson. So today we're going to go through just a huge portion of scripture. Okay. So I'm going to put some up on the board here or the the screens here. And a lot of it, I'm just going to kind of tell you because we're covering chap, huge chapters of the old Testament. So we're going to go kind of quick, but um, so this is about 22 years. We're going to pick up. David's been King. It's, you know, he's used to the whole show. He's been King now for like 20 ish years, 22 years. And uh, he's in his fifties about this time, like maybe late forties, early fifties. Now, For starters, 50 now is like the new 20, right? Like if you're in your 50s, you're still feeling good. It's a good age. You're hitting your stride. You're still considered young. But 50 back in David's time was old. Like he lost most of his teeth at this time. Like he stunk. He's old. He's not like today's 50. So he's kind of decrepit. His men are all out fighting battles because that's what they did. They're out fighting battles and out on the battlefield. And David's at home and it says that he kind of wakes up from a nap, right? Like how awesome would that be? Just to wake up from a nap, you know, while everyone else is at work. And so he wakes up, he's walking up on top of the palace, he's up on the roof and he sees a woman, right? I told Jim, I'll preach on David, but I don't want the story of Bathsheba. Give that to somebody else. But I got Bathsheba somehow. So David's out there, he's on top of the palace and he spies out and he sees a woman bathing. And what does he do? He likes what he sees and he says, hey, servant, get over here. He's like, who's that woman over there? And the servant says, that's Uriah's wife. I'm going to emphasize that again. That's Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And David's like, yeah, whatever. Bring her to me. Right? Like, haul at your girl. I want her over here. So he does. She shows up. And then David sleeps with her. Probably more than one time on more than one occasion. And he does this, and then she sends a note to him, or a, a letter, or a tweet, or however they delivered little notes back in the day. But she says, hey David, guess what? I'm pregnant. And so David panics, like all men would do, and he says, how am I going to fix this? So he develops a plan, right? Because he's the king. And if you remember, through this series, we've learned that God said you don't want a king. Okay? You can have priests, you can have all these other things, but you really don't want a king, because when you have a king, you have to do what the king says, Right? If you don't do what the king says, you have two options. You live and do what he says, or you don't do what he says and you die. So when King David commands the woman here, they bring her to him. So David has this plan, okay? He calls in her husband, Uriah, back from the war. He calls him in, he says, Hey Uriah, like just just give me a quick update. How are things going? And Uriah's like, Oh, the battle's tough, blah, 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 and just going. So King David's like, okay, great. Now take a rest. Go home to your wife, right? Like, just go home, spend the night, you know. Do what married couples do. And so he does, but he doesn't. He leaves the the palace and he sleeps outside the palace gates because his men are out fighting this battle. His men are out sleeping in the mud and dying out on the battlefield. So he's not gonna go home to his wife, okay? And this kind of throws a wrinkle in David's plan. He's like, ugh, like, how is he gonna think the baby's his if she won't go home? So David brings him back the next day. He's like, hey, stay one more night. He's like, let's have a big feast. So David gets Uriah nice and drunk. Okay, gives him all the wine in the kingdom and he's nice and drunk and David kind of like points him towards home, slaps him in the butt, sends him on his way. But he doesn't end up at home. He sleeps again outside the palace gates. And David's just like, what is the deal with this guy, right? And so David's got, he feels he's got no choice. I don't want to say he had no choice, but David felt he had no choice. So the next day, he writes some instructions down. He gives them to Uriah. Uriah takes the note, and he brings it to the front lines to Joab, who's one of David's kind of high commanders in the army. And he gives it to Joab, and Joab opens it, and it says, put Uriah on the front lines, and when the battle is at its fiercest, kind of pull back so that Uriah is killed in battle. So David gives Uriah his own death sentence to be delivered to his commander. So Uriah dies. He ends up being killed in the heat of battle. And so Bathsheba mourns and she's sad and she mourns the death of her husband. And David does the the nice thing and he welcomes in this widow and he's going to marry her and raise someone else's child. So problem solved, right? Wrong. So as you know, in kingdoms, there's lots of slaves at this time. So they like to talk. So, everyone knew what David had done. There was no secret here. He might have thought he pulled the wool over some people's eyes, but everyone knew what David did. Okay? Everyone knew what David did. And so, this man named Nathan shows up. So, Nathan is a prophet. So, if you were a king back in the day or someone of of importance and a prophet made an appointment with you, there's probably not good news following. Okay? Because. They saw the future sometimes. God gave them visions. And so Nathan shows up and he confronts David, okay? He does this thing. He tells a story to David because he's the king. You got to kind of dance around the issue a little bit. You can't just go and be like, hey, man, you killed that guy. Like, what's the deal? So he does and he tells him a story. So Nathan tells this story. I'm not going to go into all the details of it. But David hears this story and he's furious. He's like, I can't believe that guy in that story. Like, that guy. And then Nathan's like, hey, David, um... That guy's you. Like, you're the guy that you're mad at. And David immediately, he breaks down and begins to weep. In 2 Samuel, this is where most of this is coming from today. 2 Samuel, it says this. It says, this is what the Lord says. So Nathan is saying this. He says, this is what the Lord says, that out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to bring calamity upon you, but I'm not just going to bring it upon you. I'm going to do it out of your own household. Your own people are going to do this to you. And it goes on. It says, you did this in secret, right? Like David did this in secret. No one knew what David was doing, but I'm going to do this in broad daylight because David, you're the king, right? Like you're responsible to all of these people that are in your kingdom. You might've done it in secret, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring it in broad daylight. Everyone's going to know what's going to happen, okay? In broad daylight before all of Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. See, David knew that he was the king, okay? He knew he was the king. He knew his role, but he was, knew he was just a king. He wasn't the king. He knew that there was a God and the God was over him and that God was the true king of Israel. So he allows, he might have broken God's command. He might have broken God's law, but he allowed God's law to break him. So he recognized that he had sinned against the Lord. He knew it. See, he never abandoned God's law, even though he broke it. He realized his faults, he realized his sin, and he allowed God to bring correction to him. And Nathan says this, he says, The Lord has taken away your sin. Like, you've been forgiven. The Lord forgives you, David. But you And you are not going to die. So he's forgiven, but sin is, here's the thing about sin. Whether you're a Christian, whether you believe in God today, whether you're, you're into this whole God thing or not, sin always comes... Prepackaged with a consequence, right? Like, you know this, and you might not, if you don't believe in Christianity or that's not you, you might not call it sin, but when you do something really bad, like, it usually comes with a consequence. Like, that's kind of parenting one-on-one when you're with your kids. You make bad decisions. Sometimes there's bad consequences, So with David, he knows this. He recognizes it. And he's thinking, all right, so when's this shoe going to drop? Like, when's my whole life going to blow up in front of all of Israel? And so he waits. And a year goes by. And then two years goes by. Five years go by. And nothing happens. Like, can you just imagine the weight that's on him at this point? So 10 years goes by. And then David's life slowly starts to flip upside down. Okay, we're going to go through some people and we're going to throw some names up because their names are a little tricky at times. But his firstborn son, so this guy's name is Amnon, okay? Amnon's his firstborn son. So as the firstborn son, he would be the next king after David. Once David dies, Amnon's going to take his place. So the thing about Amnon is this, is that the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about him, but it tells him that he was filled with lust for his half-sister, Okay. Weird. So he has this thing for his half-sister. Okay, He's got it out for her. Her name is uh, Tamar. And I don't know if that's how they pronounced it back then, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. So he's got this thing for Tamar, but she really doesn't care. Like David's got a ton of brothers and sisters and half-sisters, and it's just a whole web there. And so she doesn't really pay a whole lot of attention to Amnon, and this drives him nuts. So Amnon's complaining. The Bible actually says that he's sick with how much he loves her or thinks he does. He gets, He's sick with this love and this passion for her. So he's telling one of his buddies and his friend and him come up with this brilliant idea. So he, has, he asks his dad, he says, dad, dad, hey David, can you have Tamar make me a special meal? Like I'm not feeling good. And if Tamar makes me a special meal, I think I'll feel a lot better if she can make me this dinner. So David's like, okay, weird, but sure, go for it. She can make you dinner. So she shows up and is going to make dinner for Amnon. So Amnon sends all his brothers. Everyone's out of the house, right? So it's just this romantic dinner. And so she makes it for him. And then Amnon kind of starts to try to make his move, right? And she is immediately resist. She says, no, my brother. She said to him, no, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. She knew that what he was trying to do was wrong. That's not what we do in Israel. Don't force me to do it. And she even calls him my brother. Like, what are you doing? Don't do this wicked thing. Because she knew that if this went this way, that she would never marry again. She would never marry. It would ruin her. But he refused to listen, it says. He refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And so at this point, she knows her life is basically over, as she knows it. In this culture, like when if something like this happened, you were kind of cast out. You weren't going to get married. No one would marry you at this time. But then here's the kind of the, the, the knife is twisted at this point. It says this, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. So immediately after this, he fills himself, his, his body is just filled with intense hatred for her. And he says to her, Get up and get out. And basically, get out of my life. You're gone. Get out of here. And she runs. She runs. And King David is furious. He's mad. But what does he do? King David does nothing, he does nothing. and and kind of keep this in the back of your mind, because this is going to be kind of a common theme for David's life at this point, is that he does nothing, because really he's lost all moral authority over his kids at this point. Like, how can, hey dad, how can you tell me not to do that when you do the same thing, or you've done this over here? He lost all moral authority. He does nothing. And then we meet another character, his name's Absalom. So Absalom is Tamar's sister. So they share the same two parents. So they're like full brother and sister or whatever that would be called. So they're true brother and sister where Amnon and Tamar are kind of half brother and sister and they're half brothers. So Absalom takes his sister in. She comes to him and she's you know broken and he takes her in and she lives with him. But he does nothing either. He doesn't avenge her. He doesn't call Amnon out on it. He does nothing. But he takes her in and he cares for her. And about two years later, Absalom does something. Two years later, he decides probably people have started to forget at this point. So he throws a party, okay? He says, hey, Dad, hey, David, you know, why don't you come to this party? I got a ton of people coming over. We're going to fire up the barbecue. It's going to be a good time. And David's like, well, if I show up, my whole entourage is there. It's just way too much. It's too much of a burden for your family if I show up. So he doesn't. So he says, all right, dad, well, I'll invite all the brothers. Like I'll have all my brothers show up and it'll be a great family reunion type thing. So they do. So they have this giant feast and they're having a good time. And then uh, Absalom gets Amon nice and drunk. There's another theme going on there. He gets him nice and drunk and he brings him into this other room where Absalom's friends are all waiting for him. And they pounce on him and they murder Absalom. I mean, they murder Amnon right in front of all their brothers. So Absalom takes, uh, avenges his sister and kills his brother right in front of all the other brothers. So all the other brothers, they scatter, they run for their lives. And then Absalom kind of flees to to the north, to what nowadays we would call Syria. And again, King David is furious. His, what we're going to find out like later on is Absalom was David's favorite son, the Bible says. But that his favorite son kills his firstborn son. And he's furious. But David does nothing. He does nothing. And so Absalom's kind of out. He's away from the kingdom. And then David kind of invites him back. He kind of feels bad. Like he misses his son. This is the one that's going to be next in line to the king, to the throne. He's going to take it over. So Absalom kind of moves back. He comes back to Jerusalem and he's there, but David never calls on him. David never speaks to him. He never sees him. And so Absalom's kind of like, why would you have me come back here if you're not even going to talk to me, dad? Like, what's the deal with this? And so he gets, he gets furious about this. And in that time, you don't just reach out to your dad and call him up on the phone, especially if he's the king. You can't just walk into the palace and say, hey, dad, I'm here. Let's talk. So he tries to get in to see David, but they refuse. He can't get in. He tries to contact Joab, who's like David's right-hand man. We saw him earlier. And so Joab won't even listen to Absalom's requests. So finally Absalom gets, he's fed up at this point. So he sends a servant, one of his servants, to go burn down Joab's farm. So he burns up all the fields. And Ab, uh, Joab is furious at this point. So he goes to Absalom. He's like, hey, Absalom, what's, what, why are you burning my field down? Like, what's the deal? And he's like, oh, you got my message. Now you'll talk to me. So he says, I've been back here for two years and my dad hasn't come see me once. Two years and he hasn't spoken a single word to me the whole time. Can you get a meeting with me? I need to speak to my father. And so he does. Joab goes and he's like, okay, I'll take care of it. But Joab knows that even he can't go in and just see the king. So he sends a woman in. Okay? He sends a woman in, and she goes in, and she's kind of like trying to sweet talk David, and she tells him a story because David loves stories, right? It's story time. She tells him a story, and I won't go into all the details on the story, but it's the same kind of circumstance as Nathan. He gets angry at this character in the story, and he's mad. Like, why would this guy treat his son that way? And she says, well, David, that's you. That's how you're treating Absalom. And so he's like, did Joab send you he sent you, didn't he? And she's like, you got me, he did. So he calls Joab in, Joab explains the situation and then Absalom shows up. He invites him in and then King David says he put his hand on his shoulder and, and on his head. And what that symbolizes is I forgive you. You're forgiven. Our relationship, it's restored. Things are good, but they're not. When Absalom leaves, he's still mad. He's upset about What's gone on? He's upset that David's done this, that David just kind of forgives him and then casts him out again. So Absalom does something that's kind of smart, okay? He sets up shop outside the palace and he sets up like a table. I don't know what it looked like, but he kind of set up like a court system of, of, in terms. And so as people walked in, he kind of stopped them and was like, hey, so what are you going to the king for? And he would, they would tell him, and he would try to solve their problems. He would try to solve, and he would hold court. And the, he had said that he captured the hearts of the people. And for four years, he did this, slowly undermining his father, slowly undermining his father's authority, and slowly pulling all these people onto his side. And so he stole the hearts of the people. And for four years, he does this. And then he starts to put his plan into motion. It said, Then Absalom, he sent secret messengers, right? He sent Snapchats out throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, As soon as you hear those sound of the trumpets, run through the streets, it says. On the next slide, it says that they run through the streets and they say, Absalom is king. In Hebron. Okay. So there's no newspaper. They don't have Facebook to check the news, right? There's no hashtags to get them to you know what's happening right now. So as soon as Absalom sends this out and these people start running through the streets, everyone just believes it. They have no choice. They don't have anything to fact check it. So they believe that that David is no longer king, and they don't know if he died, if David just kind of let Absalom take over or what. But Absalom does this and it kind of starts in motion, this coup. The Absalom is taking over. And so about 16 years, give or take, David's world is completely flipped upside down again. Ever since Bathsheba, it's just been a constant downward slope for him. David's still seeing the consequences of his choices, of his actions. His firstborn son murdered, okay? His daughter raped. His next, uh, his oldest son, whose favorite, or not his oldest, but the next in line is now trying to overthrow him. And if you've had one of those days, right? Like you've just had one of those days, just think, oh, at least I'm not David, right? Like at least my kids aren't acting like David's kids. They might give me a hard time in the morning, but they are not David's kids, right? Just remember, David struggled. And a messenger came and they told David, he said, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom, They're with him. And then David said to his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee. We got to get out of here. This is not safe or none of us will escape from Absalom. He knew that Absalom was setting up shop. He knew he had seen the rumors. He knew what his son was doing. And he knew that if he gets here, that everyone is going to follow him and none of us are going to be safe. So he he said, we must leave immediately. We must leave immediately immediately or he will quickly overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. He knew his son was ruthless. He knew that if he saw these people that were still there, that if they were David followers, that he would slaughter them all. So David gathered all these people to save the city. He left. So David knew that if he remained there, it would just be a massive slaughter. So David took it upon himself to flee this time. This time, it's different than he did 20 years ago. He's about 60 now. And so things have started to change. He's grown up a little bit. But believe me, this wasn't David's dream. David had a plan early in life, and this wasn't it. This wasn't what he expected to happen. And that's kind of where, for many of us, our stories and David's kind of intersect, where we have a plan. We grow up thinking that we're going to do this in life. We're going to do that. Our kids are going to behave this way. Our marriage is going to be that way. Our job is going to be awesome. It's going to be fulfilling. All of these things. But then sometimes things don't go as we plan them. And we're heartbroken. We're disappointed. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're looking for someone to blame. As you can see, your dream just fade away. Maybe it's, you know, this thing has happened and and you hung in there year after year after year with him. And then he goes and does that. Or she goes and does that. Or you waited, you put your time in, you worked hard, you did all the right things, you checked all the boxes and the promotion went to somebody else instead of you. Or you raised your kid right. You prayed every night with them. You prayed at the dinner table. You brought them to church every single Sunday. And yet when they left for college, they just never returned. They never came back to church. They never had that relationship that you so honestly wanted them to have. You were honest, you worked hard, but things just didn't turn out the way you wanted. And you tried to handle them on your own. Or I've tried to handle things on my own. And, and you pile on more pain reliever to hide the pain, but it brings more pain. And when you pile more debt on top, and then more debt just shows up. And nothing seems to solve itself. And then you might ask these questions like, where is God? Where is God? Why is He putting me through this? Why is He doing this to me? What's the point? Like, what's the point of being the good guy, right? What's the point? Why even try if it's all going to be a a crapshoot anyways? But this isn't the first time that David fell into this situation. It's not the first time that David was reminded of this. The first time he fled the kingdom, he took things into his own hands, and he tried to solve it on his own, and he knew how that ended up. But the lesson from this season that we're going to learn from David, we're not quite there. So here we're going to kind of pick the story back up. But David gets this caravan of people. Okay, So they're leaving. They're coming out of the city. They're leaving. He's got all his supporters. And Absalom kind of shows up in the place. And he thinks he's got it all figured out. But David's already on his way out. It said that the whole countryside, the whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. They saw King David leaving and they were weeping that their leader was was no longer the leader, they thought. The king also crossed the the Kidron Valley and it said all the people moved on towards the wilderness. The wilderness. This kind of tells me he had no clue where he was going. He's just, I got to get out of here. I'm on my way. We're going to the wilderness. We need to develop a plan, and we don't have one at this point, but we're going to get there. No destination in mind. They're just running for their lives. And this man was with him, his name was Zadok. Okay, so Zadok was there. And all the Levites, so they were like kind of over the sacrificial system of of the day, the priests and those things. And so they're with them and they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant of God. You might have heard that phrase, the Ark of the Covenant. And this is very, very important. In in Old Testament, this is kind of the presence of God. They carried this box with them that housed the, the literal presence of God. And they had to carry it a certain way. And if you touched it, there's a story in the Bible where it started to fall and a guy kind of went to grab it and boom, dead, on impact, just because he touched it. This is the very presence of God. And as these people watched, as it was taken out of the city, you had to, to feel like they're weeping because their leader is gone and now the presence of God is going with them. He was literally bringing the presence of God. And David kind of looks back and it is, we don't really know why he sends it back, but he's got this weird feeling about him. And so David, he says to Zadok, take the ark of God back to the city. Take it back. I don't feel right taking the presence of God with me. You know, I, it just rubbed David the wrong way. We don't really know why, but he sends it back. He sends it back. And David says this very important thing. He says, if I find favor with God, If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back, okay? He knows that if God will find favor in him, he'll see the ark again. He'll be near it again, and he'll let me see it again, and he'll bring me back into his presence. He knows that I'm not in control anymore. He tried the control game, and it didn't work. He knew his faults. He knew his flaws. He knew that God was the true person in control, so he sends that back because he's not playing games this time. He says, let God decide. But then he goes on and says, but he says, if I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. If the Lord's not pleased with me, then I'm ready. Whatever God decides, he's ready. I'm not going to fight God. I'm not going to do this on my own. He says, I am ready. Let him do with me whatever he seems, seems good to him. David knows. Okay, he's in his 60s at this time. He knows I'm not in control. I'm king, but I'm not the king. I'm a king, but I'm not the king. Every time I impose my will and I try to control the situation, it slips through my hands and and I just cause more and more problem. You You might remember this phrase, thy will, not my own. Thy will be done, not my own. Essentially, that's what David's saying is that, you know, I'm going to send it back. And if God's will is for me to return, if God's will is for me to survive this, then let it be done, but let him be in control. He chose not to abandon God, even when he had all the flags, all the signs that led him to think that God chose to abandon him. That's not what happened. He chose not to abandon God. He might have let broken God's covenant, broken God's law, but he didn't abandon God. So he risks his life. He brings the city out with him. And God put him in that place and he knew that God could take him out of it at any time. So Absalom, he takes the city, okay? Absalom comes in, he takes the city. It's like he walks in preparing for a battle and there is none. So he just shows up and he walks right in and he sits on the throne. But the thing is, it's an empty victory because he knows that he's not the true king unless David's dead. So he's furious at this point. And so he brings this guy in. So this one's tricky to say, Ahithophel, okay? Ahithophel. And so this guy who, uh, many believe that this was Bathsheba's grandfather, but Ahithophel is uh, one of David's most trusted advisors, okay? He's got all the, he, he goes to David, he tells him what he should do, and David agrees with him. And so Ahithophel kind of stays in the kingdom, right? Like he's kind of going on, he's like, all right, David's out, so who's the new guy? I need to, you know, snuggle up to him and make sure I'm in my good spot in the kingdom. And so Ahithophel, is the advisor. And so he betrays David to kind of go under Absalom. So Absalom says, Ahithophel, what should I do? Like, what do I do? David's gone. What should I do? And Ahithophel knew that David was a mighty warrior. He knew that David was victorious in battle, that when you fought David, you lost almost every time you lost. He knew the stories about David and he knew that their best chance was to leave immediately and to go hunt David down and all the men and just slaughter them as quick as possible. He knew that if they got a time and David could collect the armies together and make a plan, that he knew that David would be victorious, no matter how many men Absalom had. And so he tells this plan. And then David kind of anticipated this because he's smart So David had this guy with him named Hushai, Hushai. We're going to call him Hushai. So Hushai is another advisor of David. So David sends Hushai back to be with Absalom to kind of frustrate things. He's kind of sending the spy in, you might say. And so he goes in there. And so he gives the opposite advice. He's like, well, you should give David some time. He's probably not even with his troops. Like, you know, get as many men as you can and then go out and hunt him down. And then you'll be able to be king. You know, Ahithophel's plans are good, but I think they're wrong this time. And so Absalom believes Hushai. He believes him. Hushai replied, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. It's not good. You know your father and his men. They're fighters, as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. This is a saying to us, but they hunted bear. They knew what that meant. He's probably now, he's, he's an experienced fighter. He's probably now hidden in a cave somewhere in another place. If you go now, it's just a wild goose chase. So Absalom tapes Hushai's advice. And so they set out and they're going to hunt down David. Okay, so I'm going to try to speed this up because there's so much here. Um, But he hunts him down, and David kind of separates his men into three groups. He gathers them all together, and he forms three separate kind of like militias, I guess. And And so he sends them out, and he gives them one explicit instruction. He says, if you encounter my son, please spare his life. I know it's battle. I know it's bloody. But if you can, please be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And so they go out. In the battle, it said the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And so this is important because most battles took place on like a big open field um, in that day. But this didn't. It took place in this dense forest. And that meant that numbers really didn't matter. You could have, you know, 10 to 1 when it came to men. But if you're in the heat of battle in a forest and you don't know where you are, the numbers, they don't matter. And so they're on the hunt. And it says Israel's troops were routed by David's men. So they kind of cut them off. And the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men lost their lives in this battle. 20,000 men in a feud between dad and son. And it goes on, it says, the battle spread over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more that day than the sword. The forest was the true victor that day. And when I saw that, me and Jude have been watching the Lord of the Rings. You know those big tree guys? They walk along real slow and they hold hobbits and they just wipe out men. That's what I thought of at this point. But I don't think that's what happened. It's probably that it was a really dense place. Um, And actually, we're going to see. Absalom ends up getting caught. He's riding his horse through the woods and he gets caught in a tree. And his horse keeps going and he's kind of hanging in his tree because it's a dense forest. And that's how many of these guys lost their lives. And so Joab shows up and Absalom's just hanging there from a tree and they slaughter him right there in front of all the men. They kill him. They don't bring him back to David. They just kill him. And so David weeps and he's mourning the, the death of his son, another son. David lost many, many sons and he's mourning them. And, and so they win the victory and David's men win and he's gonna you know, go back to Jerusalem and be king, but he's weeping about this. And all the men are kind of like, Should we celebrate? Like, what do we do? Like, we feel like David worried more about his son than all the rest of us. And so they call him out on it. And David agrees, like, okay, you know, I'm king again. And he goes back to his kingdom, and he reigns for another nine or so years until he dies at the age of 70, a broken old man, because of his mistakes. Now, the Bible is so neat because all of this took place in the Bible. All of this is in there. You should read it for yourself because we just flew through it. But it kind of goes to show the authenticity of it that all of David's faults are wide open on display for all of us to read. Like they didn't hide anything. They didn't hide things. They let it all out there. But here's the thing that we know about David is that he never lost his confidence in God. No matter what life threw at him, no matter how many plans went down the tubes, his life didn't end happily ever after. Okay? He didn't have the perfect marriage or perfect marriages back then. He didn't have the perfect kids. He didn't have the relationships with the kids that he probably hoped that he would have. But here's what we need to learn from David and that what we can learn. It says this, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of my faith and yours, it cannot be built upon answered prayer. It can't be built upon answered prayer. The foundation of our faith it's not that God answers prayer. It's not that life is always going to go our way or that dreams come true and fields are always green and full of life. That The foundation of our faith is not that dreams always come true because plans fail, don't they? Life happens. Sometimes dreams can't come true. Sometimes friends, you know, lose the bigger picture. Sometimes friends come and go and life just seems to happen But the reality is, is that God is so much bigger than just answer prayers. Because if you only believe and you're built upon this belief that God is going to answer all your prayers, what happens when he doesn't? Because there's people all around us today that could tell you a story where God didn't answer their prayer. Or that God didn't answer the way that you wanted them to. And having this view of God as just, he's only there because he answers prayer is so small. And it's so weak. It's a mistake to wrap our faith in God around the fulfillment of our dreams by saying, you know, I got the job. God must be real. Like, God's real. I got the job. I prayed for. But you know what? I prayed for healing for my friend or I prayed for healing for my father or my grandfather and God just decided not to grant me that prayer. So there must not be a God. That logic just doesn't work. I prayed and I prayed, but God didn't answer it the way that I wanted him to. Dreams don't always come true. But David would be quick to remind us that we're mistaken to assume that we're forsaken. That sounds real nice, but it's hard to put that into practice, that we're mistaken to assume that God has forsaken us. And David's life points us that way. When he said, if I find favor in God's eyes, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back but let him do whatever seems good to him. He's got this. If you leave here today without without remembering a single thing, it's just to remember that God has got this, not my will, but yours. I may lose my job. I may lose my spouse. I may lose my whole family. My whole world can go down the tubes, but I will not lose my faith in God. I will not lose my confidence that God loves me, that God has always loved me. And who was there with me through it all. No matter the circumstances in life. Even if my dreams don't come true. Even if my plans go awry. Even if prayer isn't answered. It's not the way I hope it will. That God is in control. And David penned this. We read this in week one. David penned this in the book of Psalms. And we're going to end here. He wrote this. And we don't know exactly when David wrote this. What situation in his life he was maybe going through. But he wrote, In you, Lord... My God, I put my trust. My trust is in you. No one else. Not my position in life. Not my authority over the kingdom. My trust is in you. My hope is in you all day long. So throw whatever life may throw at you. God is in control and he's got this. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you are the true king over all. We thank you that you are in control and that we can come to you with prayers and plans and dreams, but that ultimately you will do what you see fit. Pray you help us to be reminded of that, that even when things don't go as planned, that you have a plan, and that it's far greater than anything that we could ever imagine, even if it takes us to a dark place that we trust in you, God, that you've got this under control. Be with Jim, give him rest this week, and we're so thankful for going to two services next week and pray for the new people that are going to show up.